0: Well, here we are on September the 24th, Uh, we are three-fourths of the way through 2023. I uh, noticed uh, kind of frighteningly on the calendar yesterday, 12 weeks from today is Christmas Eve. And so, uh, yikes, I thought, wow, 12 weeks from today is Christmas Eve. But we just keep rolling along through the routines of life, striving to please God and serve God and love God and obey God as we move through those daily routines. And that kind of is what life is all about, is it not? The vast majority of life is not made up of big, momentous, earth-shattering life choices. It is made up of thousands of small day-to-day choices that all add up uh, to build us into the people that we are today on September 24th of 2023. What we are today is because of the sum total of all of our choices throughout all of our lives. The big choices, of which there are a few, and the little choices, of which there are thousands. So we just keep rolling through, uh, along with the routines of life, striving to please God and serve God and love God and obey God with our choices as we move through our daily routines. And one of our weekly routines of life is that we are currently studying our way through the Gospel of Mark. And I hope that this routine has been a blessing and encouragement to, to, to you. I would like to introduce our thoughts today today. ...from the Gospel of Mark by turning to a somewhat obscure book in the Old Testament. It is the book of Micah. It is only obscure to us because we don't read the minor prophets very much. And they are, you remember, we call them the minor prophets not because they are less important, but because they tend to be shorter... Uh, that is not a perfect categorizing. Uh, the book of Daniel, which is in the major prophets, that we call one of the major prophets, has 12 chapters. And the book of Zechariah, which is in the minor prophets, actually has 14 chapters. And so uh, all the categorizing doesn't work out perfectly. But generally speaking, the major prophets are the longer ones. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and then the minor prophets are shorter books at the, end of the New, at the end of the Old Testament. So Micah chapter 6, I had that explanation for you so I could give you an extra 30 seconds or so to find the book of Micah, uh, because, uh, because it is not a book that we look at a lot. Uh, but there are some wonderful, wonderful things there in the book of Micah. Uh, those of you who remember the Christmas story, remember that the prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem is in the book of Micah. And when the wise men came to Herod and asked him, you know, where the Messiah was to be born, they said, well, he's to be born in Jerusalem. And they quoted from the book of Micah. Now, uh, that's in actually chapter five. But what I want you to look at today is Micah chapter six. Micah chapter 6, and God in this passage is kind of pleading with Israel. He's uh, pleading with Israel to uh, asking Israel why, why she would not obey him, why she would not follow him even though he had been faithful. I just want to read the first few verses and there's one very key pivotal verse that we will we'll wind up here in the book of Micah and you Bible underliners or Bible highlighters, uh that I know a number a, a number of you like to do that. Uh, there is a verse here I would encourage you to mark. But hear now what God what the Lord says, Micah chapter six and verse one. Hear now what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. And then I want to focus these last three verses here. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And this is our verse, verse 8. He, meaning God, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with Your God. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. By contemporary, I mean their lifespans overlapped. They very likely were acquainted with each other. And Micah preached the word of the Lord to the southern kingdom of Judah, as did Isaiah. Micah wrote these words shortly before the northern kingdom of Israel was overrun by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. If you're not somewhat familiar with all that Old Testament history, no problem. I just, I, and I don't want to confuse you, I don't have time to explain all that history right now or we'll never get where we need to get to in the sermon. But the date is important. The timing is important. Now, just a thing, that Micah wrote these words About 700 years before Jesus gave us the teaching in Mark that we're going to be looking at in a minute. So the issue that Jesus Christ is going to raise with the Pharisees is not a new issue. It is at least 700 years old. The Lord says through the prophet Micah, What have I done to you, Israel? Why won't you obey me? I have been faithful to you for centuries, yet you are all wrapped up in rituals and ceremonies, even though I have told you what I actually require of you. My ceremonies in the law, God says, are supposed to be a reflection of who I am, and to remind you of who you are, and and, and, and they are supposed to be done from a heart of devotion to me. So what does God actually want from us? He wants, according to Micah 6.8, He wants a lifestyle of justice and mercy and humility. And if we don't have that, if we don't have a lifestyle of justice and mercy and humility in our walk with the Lord... If if, if we don't have that, then thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil will mean nothing. And if you're not sure of what that symbolism is, they used oil in their sacrifices, oil burning the lamps in the temple. Uh, There were thousands of sheep and goats and so forth that that were offered. And so he said, if we don't have justice and mercy and humility, then thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil are going to mean nothing. It's just empty ritualistic worship. Now we want to fast forward 700 years and we want to see that nothing much had ever changed with the Jewish people. Actually, it got worse. So if you will look at the Gospel of Mark in chapter 7, thinking again now, we are 700 years after God challenges the the nation of Judah through the prophet Micah. What have I done to you, God says. I have been nothing but faithful to you for all of these centuries. And yet he said, you are so wrapped up in empty ritualistic worship that you will not live a life of justice and mercy. And so this went on for century after century after century after century. This is a little bit longer section than we often read, but I want you to read the entire story. So we're going to read the first 23 verses here, Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, not talking about getting the dirt off, we'll explain that in a minute, holding the (laughs) tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other things which they have received and hold, Mark writes, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you may have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything of his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. And when he called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man." If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, "What comes out of a man that defiles a man for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man the key uh, The key verse to understanding." This entire incident in verses 6 to 7, where Jesus says, You honor me with your lips, but your heart is a million miles away. You're worshiping me in vain, teaching for, as, as though they are commandments, they're just the doctrines of men. He said, you, you worship with your lips, but your heart's not with me. You practice vain worship, and vain means empty, useless, pointless, lifeless. This sort of thing's been going on since the time of Isaiah and Micah, at least seven hundred years, and even before their time, it was in the fabric of how the Jewish people thought and how they acted. They they were literally the products of centuries of, of hypocritical, superficial, empty, useless worship. It was directed at the right God, but it was done in totally the wrong way, which is an important principle for us. God does not accept worship even worship in his name that is directed at him if it's not done his way. It's obviously a serious problem to worship the wrong God, but it's equally a serious problem to worship the right God in the wrong way. And the Jewish religious establishment had turned uh, this this whole religion that they supposedly had into this very highly sophisticated art form, serving the true and living God in the wrong way man-made way filled with rituals and ceremonies and traditions that had nothing to do with what God had told them and you know there's actually a lot of that going on today all around us many people talk about the creator but they have no idea who he is or what he requires of us so they just make it up as they go along or pretend that they know what they're doing Other people are quite convinced that they know who the true and living God is, and maybe they do. But they have created this system of of ceremonies and rituals and prayers that have no foundation in the Word of God. Then they go so far as to say that their traditions are equal to or even superior to the expressed will of God that he gave us in his written word. So the traditions and practices of their church become a a higher authority than the Bible, the written word of God. They do exactly what Jesus condemned in verse 7. They teach as doctrines, divine teaching, they teach as doctrine the commandments of men taking the commandments of people and turning them into something that's equal to the teachings of God himself there's a vast worldwide empty meaningless worship directed toward God but is nothing but hypocrisy and a scam an external ceremony and ritual, and you're probably all, probably all of you are very, very familiar with it. Maybe you've been involved in some of those things in years gone by or decades gone by. But I want to group our thoughts today around three words, tradition and hypocrisy and sin. That's the, the, the three issues that Jesus is touching on, tradition, hypocrisy, and sin. I've said to you many times that the power of a text is in its context, so we always try to understand the backstory. Remember, the last time, uh, last time we were together, we, we, we mentioned that the feeding of the 5,000, as we call it, actually it was more like feeding of 20,000, but, but the feeding of the 5,000, as we call it, took place near the end of Jesus' second year of ministry. John 6 says it happened right before the Passover. Jesus was crucified the following Passover, so the ministry of Jesus has about one year left, and he knows it, of course. And we see here in Mark chapter 7 the transition between the year of popularity in Jesus' ministry and the year of opposition in Jesus' ministry. The scribes and Pharisees, we see in chapter 7, verse 1, they have come up from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. Jesus has already had confrontations with the local religious leaders. Now they've called in the big guns, the, 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 the powerful string pullers from Jerusalem. They, they show up to shut down this threat to their political power. They have to find a way to discredit this incredibly popular rabbi, this Jesus of Nazareth, who has literally thousands upon thousands of people flocking to him everywhere he goes. So they begin to criticize Jesus' disciples. That's a standard strategy. If you want to discredit a religious leader, then try to point out all the flaws of those who listen to him. Once in a while, it's been a long time, but once in a while, someone will approach me and they'll say, Does so-and-so go to your church? I look at him and say, Yeah. Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. You know what they're, you know what they, I mean, it's only happened to just once or twice. And you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to find something that they think you guys are doing wrong so they can discredit our church and me. That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. You know what? I don't expect you to be sinless. I'm sure not. I don't expect you to be something that I'm not. But I do certainly want you to pursue a relationship with the Lord. And, and, and to do your best to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, uh, you know, I won't, keep, I won't keep going on that issue. But anyway, uh, here the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? And again, it's not again, it's not a personal hygiene issue. This attack is coming based on Jewish traditions, and it's important to note that this is not an issue of Scripture, it was an issue of tradition. The disciples were not eating with dirty hands, they were not cleaning fish from the Sea of Galilee, and then coming home and baking bread without washing their hands. It's not a sanitation issue. It's not a personal hygiene issue. It it is a ceremonial ritual issue. The washing that they are referring to is a special ceremonial ritual that was done to spiritually purify themselves. Over the centuries, they had all kinds of ceremonies like that, that that developed. In fact, Mark referred to them, and he said they have all kinds of ceremonies, like washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. They have all kinds of things that they've added. They would wash their hands and then they'd take a pitcher of water. They'd hold their hand like this and they would pour little little bits of water up over their fingers and let it run off and drip. And and then they would turn it around this way and they'd pour it over this way and then they'd let it drip. And then they'd do the same thing to this hand. And then they'd rub their fist here. Then they'd rub their fist here. Then they'd shake their hands. Then then they would dry them. And that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about washing the dirt off. They're talking about the ritualistic, why they eat without without washing their hands in this ritual purification ceremony. Now, of course, from our standpoint, we say, so what? But from their perspective, centuries they have been doing these empty ritualistic things. In fact, some people, about 200 years after Christ, The Jewish leaders took all the traditions that they had developed, and they put them together in one big, massive document called the Mishnah, means to repeat. Then they decided that the Mishnah needed more explanation, and so they wrote commentaries on the Mishnah, and they called it the Gemara, which means completed. Then the school of rabbis in Jerusalem took the Mishnah and and the Gemara and they created the Talmud. Maybe you've heard of the Talmud, that's a little bit more common term. Then some rabbis figured they needed more commentaries on the Old Testament, so they wrote something called the Midrash. Of course, they were the only ones who could correctly interpret the Old Testament. So now there was so much religious material, so many traditions, so many rituals, that the actual Bible was buried under this mountain of tradition and ritual. These documents were not around during the time of Christ, but the raw material for creating them was growing bigger and bigger and bigger with every generation of rabbis. And this had been going on for hundreds of years before Jesus confronted the Pharisees about this. In fact, I read this week that that, that in the Mishnah, there are 30 chapters dealing with the washing of pots and pans and cooking utensils. 30 chapters that's not, this, this thing that he's talking about here in chapter 7, it's not a hygiene issue. It is a ritual issue. I don't think any of you ladies need 30 chapters in a book to tell you how to wash a pan. you got it all figured out. Stick it in the water, wash it out, rinse it and dry it. It's over. But no, it, it's not a hygiene issue. It's this big, long, ritualistic, you got to wash this way and hold it this way and pour water this way and do this with this hand, do this with this. Oh, 30 chapters. And how devoted were they to all this? Well, the Talmud says, and this is a quote, The words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. Whoa! Whoa! The Talmud says, It is a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of Rabbi Hillel than the words of the scripture. It also says, My son, attend to the words of the scribes more than the words of the law. Their traditions had become more important to them than the actual word of God. How sad, and yet very much like today in many religious circles, that the traditions of a certain church or a certain faith or whatever are more important to some people than the actual word of God. That's why when Jesus preached, they kind of shook their heads and said, "Well, this guy speaks like somebody who has authority, not like the rabbis and the scribes what do they mean by that? Well, all the rabbis and the scribes, they just quoted somebody. That's all they had. They just read something out of a book that somebody said. Jesus never quoted the traditions of the rabbis. He preached the scriptures. And people said, wow, that kind of sounds like an authority. Well, they're right. Yeah, the Bible is the authority. Not the traditions of men. And so Jesus says, you, you bunch of phony hypocrites. He said, Yeah, you are worshiping me in vain. You are teaching the commandments of men as though it's doctrine from God. And he said, Isaiah was writing about you when he said, You, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is a million miles away. Then Jesus addresses the issue of hypocrisy. When he, when he calls them hypocrites, there in verse six. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. And then he explains to them in these verses, and I'll, I'll tell you what that means in just a second, what the what the background of that is, about this issue of Korban devoting this and that to God. But you know, the, the, the Greek word, hypocrites that's where you get our English word hypocrite from, has a very interesting history. In the Greek and Roman world, a common entertainment was to go to a play, and rather than having dozens of actors using makeup and so forth to play a certain part, there would just be a small number of actors who played several parts. Each actor would play several parts, and the way they would switch parts is they would run backstage, change their robe, and switch masks. They would wear a mask. And then they would come back out and they would say their line for this part. Then they'd run back and they'd switch masks and they'd come out and they'd be somebody else. And you had four or five or six people playing 20 different parts because all they did is just switch masks when they had the appropriate part. And, and so, so the Hippocrates was an actor who changed his masks to play different parts in the play. So you can see how the word came to mean what it means to us. Jesus said to the Pharisees there in verse 9, You are just playing a part. You're a bunch of fakes who are playing a part. You manipulate the scripture so that you can keep your traditions. And then he gives this story. He talks about the word korban. You just say korban over all your stuff. What that means is is that is a Hebrew expression that means given to God. And so Jesus says to them, If your parents have a need... And the Bible says, honor your father and mother. But if your parents have a need, then you just tell them, oh, sorry, folks, I've given all my possessions to God. So you can't have any of them and I can't help you. Sorry, mom, I've dedicated all my money to God. I, I, I can't buy your lunch today. And even though you're supposed to be honoring your father and mother, you manipulate the commands of God with your traditions so you don't have to obey the Scripture. And, of course, many, many hypocrites today, of course, that people have, who have developed a very elaborate system of rituals to make them feel good about themselves, but at the same time, they are rejecting the truth of the Scripture. One ancient rabbi who was writing against all of this nonsense he once said, there are ten parts of hypocrisy in the world, and nine of them live in Jerusalem. And you know, there are, there are plenty of parts of, of, of hypocrisy in the fake forms of Christianity that are floating around out there today. And our prayer, of course, is that God would d- deliver us from from wearing a mask and manipulating the scripture to justify our actions. Someone visited our church many, many years ago, probably 20 years ago, and he spent quite a bit of time after church with a bunch of proof texts, as I call them, that he used to justify his lifestyle. That that is exactly what Jesus is condemning. We find a phrase here and a phrase there. We put this together and we justify our actions with Jesus says when people do that, they are being hypocrites. They're just wearing a mask and they're trying to manipulate the scripture to justify what they are. So after Jesus kind of blasts them regarding their, their traditions and their hypocrisy, Jesus addresses the issue of sin. And this is so, so important for us. Why do I sin? Why do you sin? Why do we drift? Why do we struggle with temptation? Why do we wrestle with our old habits as we try to follow the Lord? You know, Jesus kind of explains that to them. He begins in verse 14. He gathers the crowd and he says to them, Hear me and understand He says, you are not spiritually defiled by what you eat. You might be damaging your physical health, but you are not destroying your soul by what you eat. You are a sinner because of what comes out of you, not because you eat bacon and cheesy french fries. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. Verse 15, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. And when he explains to his his disciples there in verse 16, he says, Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, it enters his stomach. You see, this is all an issue of the heart. It's what's going on inside of us. We are in sin, verse 20 says, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man proceed all these things. Jesus says we are sinners because of what comes out of our heart. Now, I know we've spoken this many times. I don't want to sound like a broken record, and I'm sure some of you may think, well, here goes the pastor again on his little sermonette about the heart. But okay, we need, we need to hear it regularly because we are all a little bit brainwashed by our modern culture. Basically, the heart is not the center. Biblically speaking, the heart is not the center of your emotions. It is not the center of your feelings. That's what, I, that's what we jokingly call the Hallmark Syndrome. The, 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 the heart, when the Bible talks about that, is not talking about the muscle that pumps your blood. It is not talking about your emotions or your feelings. The Bible is talking about the heart is, is the center of your thinking. It is the center of your reasoning, your deciding, your choosing. The heart in the Bible is your inner person. It is the real you living inside your body that is driving your motivations and your values and your choices. And Jesus says, that's why we are defiled spiritually, because what comes out of our hearts is evil. What goes into soul st- stomach does not defile you what comes out of your heart is what defiles you see the bible says our problem is not outside of us our problem is inside of us jeremiah 17 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it romans 3 verse 10 says there is none righteous no not one see sin works its way from the inside out When I get up in the morning and I look at myself in the mirror, I am looking at my own worst enemy. My own worst enemy is not my wife. Your own worst enemy is not your spouse. Your own worst enemy is not that kid at school that drives you nuts. It's not that coworker that you can hardly stand to deal with. It's not that only person who lives down the road from you. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is the person we see in the mirror every morning. Because our problems are not outside of us. Our problems are inside of us. And our society does not want to admit that. You hear people being interviewed all of the time who say, Well, you know, the reason I did this and the reason I have this problem and the reason I have done this antisocial criminal behavior or bizarre behavior because I, I was really misunderstood as a child. I was molested as a child. I was denied privileges as a child. I had overbearing parents. I was abused. I was unloved. I was bullied, etc., etc., etc. No, 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 no. Jesus says we do what we do because it's in our hearts. Look at the list, he says. Verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, Fornications, you're not sure of the difference, those two words, adultery, deals with, with married people having sexual relationships with people that they are not married to. Fornication is a very broad term that deals with all kinds of sexual immorality. So evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wanting things that other people have. Not just things like they have, but wanting the actual thing that they have. Wickedness. Deceit, lewdness, we don't use the term a lot, it just means a person who acts in crude, ungodly ways. And, and evil eye, that's, a, that's a, a Jewish expression to indicate uh, envy and greed. Blasphemy, that is slandering against people. Pride, foolishness. Jesus says all these evil things come from within, and they defile a man. You know, the New Testament only speaks about what defiles the inside. Matthew 15, and here in Mark 7, speaks about the heart being defiled. Titus chapter 1, it talks about the defiling influence of unbelief. 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul writes of the defiling influence of idolatry, putting anything in the place of God. Hebrews chapter 12, very interesting, talks about the defiling influence of bitterness in the heart. The little book of Jude talks about the defiling influence of sin that is in us. You see, our sin is not an environment problem. It is not a circumstance problem. It is a heart problem. It is an inner man problem. And the only way to solve it is to get a new heart. And I want to close today by reading with you Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Beautiful passage of Scripture. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then 1 and 2 Timothy, and then Titus, if you're flipping through the New Testament. Titus chapter 3. Actually, I'm just going to pick up reading in verse 3. Titus 3, verse 3. Beautiful passage. The Apostle Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's a, that is the picture of the unsaved heart. Disobedient, deceived, deceived pursuing different lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But, verse 4, I love it, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, talking about Jesus, of course, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Lots of great theology there where Paul says, God took us deceitful, hating, envy, nasty, I mean, all this stuff in our hearts, even if on the outside we look real nice and clean. On the inside, we're filled with all those things And he said, then all of a sudden, God in His mercy breaks through through, with His great love with which He's loved us. He poured out the Holy Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we've been justified by His grace. We've been forgiven. We've been washed clean. We have a new heart. Now, does that solve every issue of life? No, we still struggle with the old nature. But now we have a chance. Now, Now we're not locked into all of those things. Our our, our hearts can only be cleansed and made new by the mercy and the grace of God and by regeneration this passage talks about. That means to be reborn, to be remade, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. So I just have one short question for you at the end here. How is your heart today? Is your heart moving toward the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been forgiven from your sin? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you still wrapped up with tradition and hypocrisy and sin? Or have you been remade by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit? Now you've got a fighting chance to fight back against those things and to resist those things and be something different because you've been transformed. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5.17, famous verse many of you know, just in my mind and it just blinked right out <laughs> somebody start quoting first corinthians five seventeen. 17 you know, yeah if any man be in christ he is a new creation there we go old things are passed away behold all things become new are you a new creation in christ how is your heart today let's pray lord your mercy and Your grace are such beautiful, beautiful things. Thank You for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the the love and the kindness of God. He poured Him out on this world. And You drew us, and You opened our eyes to see the truth, and You brought us into Your family. Lord, we are so thankful to belong to You. Lord, we pray for our loved ones who are still locked up in tradition and hypocrisy and sin. They don't even know it any more than the Pharisees knew it. Pharisees thought they had it all together. They were going to make it to heaven because they were so good on the outside. And they kept all the traditions and they kept all the rituals and they, and they did all the right things and they said the right things and they looked the right way. And they had all these external things that they were doing, but they never experienced heart change because they never came to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Lord, we pray for our loved ones who need Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is not sure that they know the Lord Jesus. I pray they would open their heart to Him today. And for we who do know You as our Savior, Lord, we do. We need our hearts to be renewed every day. We need to be walking a life of repentance. And we need to be turning from sin and turning toward the Lord Jesus Christ as you build us up to help us be what you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, for the grace and mercy of God. We would all be totally, totally lost in this life and for all of eternity without the mercy and grace of God. Thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.